This is Postcards from Grafton. We're exploring the most fascinating people and places in our community and everything in between. We are your hosts, Fred Backstrom and Gavin Maziars from the Grafton Midview Public Library. This podcast is made possible by the Grafton Village History Association. Today, we are continuing our discussion with uh, Gerald Batusik and talking more about, and he's sharing more about his experiences working uh, for NASA and the Department of Energy. This is a two-part discussion, so remember to check out part one that we released a little bit earlier, in which Mr. Matusik is discussing his experiences growing up in Grafton and raising his family in Grafton. Our history matters, our community matters. Enjoy the stories. So I took him up on it and selected the machine shop. That's my baby. And that's why I retired a hundred years later. Must have been the right place then. It sure was. I, I can't imagine if I custom made a position for me, it would be that. <laughs> <laughs> if it, well, what did you do in the machine shop then? You know, what was it all about? Well, initially you learned how to operate uh, we had probably 200 different machines. Well, not 200 different. We had probably 200 machines in the shop. We had 100, and, I think 160 men and no women. Mm. <laughs> that came later. <laughs> but uh, so the first thing you learned was how to operate everything in the shop. And in my case, he just kind of turned me loose. If you have any problems or any questions before you start the machine, ask anybody in the shop, any of the journeymen, mm-hmm. and they'll get you straightened out on it. So uh, that was you know, a four-year apprenticeship. But by the end of your third year, you were expected to be doing journeyman work. There's no problem. I could do that. And uh, as time passed, I... Uh, that, well, the first, first job I got did was a real assignment where I was responsible for it. I wasn't part of a team. You know? It was a uh, model of a turbine compressor wheel with the blades on it. I remember it real well because I didn't like the job. <laughs> it was brass, made out of brass. This was a display model. It was about that diameter. Maybe had 60 blades on it. They were removable. 60 of anything just drive me nuts. <laughs> I'll make one to give me something else now. <laughs> well, I was glad to get rid of that job, but I did it. And uh, my very first job was with a small group that was in the machine shop. They were machinists, but they did the smaller work. The machines they had accessible to them were small machines. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first day on the job, the foreman uh, introduced himself and he said, uh, here's how we work here. When you come to work in the morning, you'll find a blueprint on your desk or on your workbench. When you finish that job, you put the blueprint on my desk in this office with the parts. And I go take a break. And uh, next time you go to your bench, you'll find another blueprint. (laughs) He said, now, you don't need to deal with me. He had an assistant. 
unless you have some problems that you'd like to discuss. That's it. <laughs> so my first job was uh, to make a nut. But he had to throw me a curve, you know. It was a left-hand thread, oh. and it was a pretty coarse thread, so it was not an easy one for a beginner to make. Mm -hmm. And a washer about that big to go with a nut. Oh, it was a big nut. Like three or four inches there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we in that little area that had the smaller machines, we had a wooden bin of cutoffs of metal stock. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I found a piece that was suitable to start with to make the washer. And I had an awful time cutting a slice of that off in the lathe. And I got through it. You know, I got it done. One of the one of the <laughs> journeymen came over to me before I was done with the with the washer. But I was I just cut it off. Just got through it. Probably took me a whole day. And uh, he said, uh, "Why did you decide to part that off in the lathe?" And I said, "Well, I don't see a cutoff saw around here." He says, come with me, I'll show you where the cutoff saws are. <laughs> it was the other end of the building, about 300 feet away. Of course. <laughs> and uh, then, the, then another thing he, he asked me about, he says, why did you pick that particular lathe? And I said, uh, well, it was the only one that was open. All the others were in use. He said, you picked the worst piece of junk that we own. <laughs> <laughs> That was part of my problem cutting off because the lathe was worn out and didn't like that. Anyway, that was my very first job. I still remember it. What, and, some, what are some of the other projects that stand well, out to you that you worked over on? the years? Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, the uh, Lewis Research Center is what that was called then. Mm -hmm. It was uh, focused on engines, piston engines before I arrived there, like the Pratt and Whitney radials and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We were trying to make improvements, especially for the military hardware. And uh, I did not have the opportunity to work on piston engines because when I started, it was right at the end of that era. And we're starting on turbines now. So we made turbine blades by the bushel basket pull of uh, some very exotic materials because the, uh, the turbine blades, they run very hot. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were at the lab, we were experimenting with different materials to improve the lifespan of these, of these little things that get melted. And uh, so in my building, building 14, was the main machine shop for the lab. There were little shops, maybe one or two machines in a corner that mechanics would use all over the lab. But for the serious work, we got that. But in building 14, we had the machine shop, we had an inspection department. We inspected everything that came in, even off the lab, made by contractor, go through our inspection group. We had uh, the ability to do dynamic balancing, electron beam welding, take and big welding and stick welding, and uh, anything related to metalworking almost. So, these turbine blades that I just mentioned, the engineers and the scientists always are trying different twists, different size, different materials. We made a lot of turbine compressor blades and turbine blades. 
And that was what we were focused on. Then the uh, space race started. Now it's rocket engines. So now we're building rocket engines. And now we had, NASA had test facilities for all this stuff. So we would build the pieces that the mechanics needed to set this device up, whatever it is, in a test cell and run it. And uh, they would sometimes decide they needed changes. They'd bring the hardware back to us and we'd change it or remake parts or whatever. So it could be anything, milling, drilling, grind, grinding, EDM. Uh, so I mentioned the welding. We had uh, one welder, a uh, journeyman welder assigned to our building. He did all the welding. And we had our own heat treating department. We had a nice bed furnace. We had three vacuum furnaces. We had one inner gas furnace. So we could accomplish any of the heat training that was needed on what we were building. And we also had a small foundry there, made castings. Some of this, uh, some of the hardware these engineers wanted, you couldn't machine that middle. So we'd have to cast it to size. <laughs> and uh, eventually, uh, we, when, I, when I was lucky enough to become a branch chief there, uh, one of my goals was to make it a that's the right word, leading edge machine shop. The equipment we had at that point was World War II. Electric discharge machining was just beginning when I started there, EDM. And uh, so we got into CNC machining pretty heavy and precision, ultra precision work. And of course we, uh, we had surface grinders and cylindrical grinders, which everybody, and learn how to operate jig boring equipment. Sure. So if you were a journeyman machinist, you did everything that was required on the job. Mm -hmm. And if it was a specialty you didn't have any experience with, you're going to get it. You're going to learn. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we went to uh, from turbine engines to rocket engines. And uh, then the space race was ended. No, nope. yeah. they don't need NASA anymore. <laughs> and this is true. I mean, they started laying people off or didn't replace retirees. Mm -hmm. And that's when we got into programs for the Department of Energy, DOE. You remember those guys? Oh, yeah. They needed research hardware built. And so that's how we got into the windmill program, for one. Oh, the windmills. Yep. Yeah. And uh, we did a lot of laser research back then, trying to find how, we didn't make the lasers, buy that commercially, but application. And uh, like in the machine shop, we, we ended up, we bought a laser cutter and a laser welding equipment. And we also got into uh, wire EDM and we got, pretty strong into that and abrasive water jet cutting. Sure, sure. And all those kinds of things were within our daily week and we did it. Mm -hmm. All the specialty things you, yep. had, you had to do. Yeah. But they were not specialty workers. They were, you, you went to the apprenticeship, mm -hmm. this is a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to turn a screw with it. <laughs> Start somewhere.
So it was, I, I had spent uh, probably a year, two years as a shop trader for apprentices. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, I actually developed a training program for the machine shop. Oh, really? It's a big which I really enjoyed doing. I enjoyed working with you with the new guys. And we had a few women now entering the workforce. Mm -hmm. Didn't present a problem at all. That's good. And More the better. Well, as as time passed, I uh, worked my way up into supervision, which would I ended up being the branch chief, which I really liked that job. But I didn't have any hands-on work anymore, and that was that was not so good. Then I ended up in the division office, worst <laughs> job I ever had. <laughs> so I retired early. <laughs> they were glad to get rid of me. They they figured out they they tried to put the square peg in a round hole. It didn't work. <laughs> That's never satisfying. You can't. Do that stuff yourself a lot of times. You can't get in there. Well, that's that's my nature. And that's what really you got to do. Yeah. Well, you talked about the the wind turbines a little bit. Could you talk tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yes, yeah, so we. Uh, it was designed by NASA people, the first ones, uh, based on what history had to teach us. Our first machine was, I think, it was 100 kilowatts output. The propeller diameter was a. Uh, 125 feet, which which by today's standards, this thing is what you'd have sitting on your desk at home, you know? <laughs> yeah, they are huge. 125 foot diameter prop, each blade weighed 2,000 pounds. <laughs> then they were made uh, like an aircraft wing, the construction wise, a made of aluminum sheet attached to ribs and spars. Our first blades were made by Lockheed, contracted that out. Uh, of course, we didn't put the tower up. Our first tower was uh, erected in Sandusky, the Plumbrook facility. I believe it was 100 foot tall. And then, of course, the nacelle that sat on top housed all the machinery and the alternator and so on. And this was a two blade machine, uh, variable pitch blades. So you could control the speed of the the low speed shaft hmm. by pitching the blades, like an airplane, like an airplane, yeah, or a boat, even. And so, we basically in our fabrication shop did all the boilerplate work, the framework, and everything that went on top of the tower, and uh, bed plate, and yeah, everything was done in house as much as we could. And the machine shop did all the machining. Uh, I was a journeyman model maker at the time, and uh, I ended up being the lead man on the project in the shop. Not that there ever was an official lead man. <laughs> so I was really involved in it. And uh, remember, I I remember talking about, we had a rumor that we were maybe going to make a big windmill. I was interested in wind power at the time. Sure. You know, I had a personal interest in it. In fact, I, had a, I built a windmill from my backyard. <laughs> power generator and uh, so I, I went to see my boss one day and told him I says if we're really going to build that job please consider me as one of the team members you know? mm -hmm. and he did <laughs> but anyway the first machine was in Plumbrook 
We learned quite a bit on that one because it, uh, well, it was like any research thing. You're always fixing it. Right? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, those bolts weren't big enough. Yeah. <laughs> so it went from uh, that being the first one and it was uh, paid for by the DOB. They paid our, our wages. The next one I worked on was destined for erection in Clayton, New Mexico. Clayton was a, out, a town out in the prairie there that provided their own electricity. And it was pretty windy out there. So they didn't have a power grid out there, you know, to hook into. So they were interested and uh, we were interested in taking one out there. So we did, we erected one out there and uh, that would be the 125 kilowatt machine. I think that was the first one we put out there. But anyway, in the effort of trying to make the machine better uh, and last longer, because we were constantly fixing these things oh, yeah. <laughs> until we learned how to do it, uh, better designs. Uh, and we made a, we try it for blades. That was a big deal. What's the best style blade? What's the best geometry? How much twist you put in it? What's the contour supposed to look like? And we tested samples in our wind tunnels in Cleveland. Lockheed built the first blades. We had two that we wanted to use and one for a spare. They were all aluminum. So I can't tell you with the, yeah. So they, they made a total of at least five blades, two for Sandusky, three for Plumbrook, uh, for like New Mexico. And then there was another machine erected on uh, Block Island off the East Coast. And it was a typical two blade. And on all these machines, we were changing blades. We try this style blade. Oh, I see. Try yeah. this style blade. Uh, and materials. The first ones, as I said, were like airplane wings, aluminum construction. We made or had made, because we didn't make a lot of blades ourselves. We contracted out a lot of them. Uh, but over the years, we tried wood blades, all wood. Hmm. We did not make those. They were made by West, West, West. They'll come to me someday. <laughs> uh, anyway, they were specialists in making big wood structures. We made in-house, we made uh, razorback blades, we called them. They were made like a uh, Piper Cub wing. Hmm. They had a main spar, which in this case was a tapered telephone pole. Steel. Oh, really? Oh, you see the white poles. Yeah, yeah. We use that for the spar. And the ribs were made out of wood by our wood model shop. And then the wood model shop skinned that structure like a Piper Cub was made out of fabric mm -hmm. and doped fabric. So those were our razorback blades. And uh, then we had different types of pitch control. Hip control, aileron control. <laughs> If we could modify blades we had, we did. If not, we'd build new ones or contract out, build new ones. So we were doing a lot of that work in the design of man materials of turbine blades. And the rest of the machine held up pretty good. We didn't have to make too many changes <laughs> in other areas. But, well, that's good. But... Uh, Two blades are prone to giving a, giving you a problem with gyroscopic vibration. 
when you try to follow the wind. And uh, so now you'll see all windmills have three blades. And we learned from that, our experience, that two blades wasn't the best way. And we also were responsible for a machine in Hawaii. We put one up there. Why Puerto Rico on the small machines? Like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ours, are, the ones we worked on were tiny, like <laughs> what you see today. Today, the tower is 400 feet tall. Oh, they're massive today. Yes. Yeah. Enormous. All over the place, then. Yep. And they work, but they, of course, still have other problems. Blades wear out, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now, what do you do with it? That's a fair question. And that's being worked on, friend. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. You'll fix it one day. The <laughs> last I heard is that uh, fiberglass blades. Mm -hmm. They're grinding them up in a pellet size, and they are using the, that for paving, experimenting. So, uh, Questionable, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, whatever else they can come up with, you know. Exactly. Maybe it'll help us fill in these potholes a little faster. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know anything about the history of wind power in the U.S. A uh, little bits and pieces. Have you ever heard of the Smith Putnam machine? I mean, I've heard of those names. Okay, <laughs> but not so much the machine. No. Before World War II, a company by the name of, well, I, I don't know the name of the company, but they built a windmill, somebody did, that they called the Smith Putnam Windmill. Grandpa's knob in Vermont. He should. <laughs> and it worked. It's a big machine. And it worked. Now we come to the biggest word in the English language. B-U-T. If you use the word but, Everything you just said is down the, down the sewer, you know? Yeah. It's unusable. <laughs> True enough. That's true. Well, I just told you it was not. <laughs> but the Smith Putnam machine had a failure, mechanical failure, crack developed in it. This was World War II. Mm -hmm. So since natural gas was plentiful and coal was plentiful, they just turned it off and locked the doors, went home. Yeah. And uh, I understand that that machine had a lot of potential, but after the war, it still wasn't economically feasible to repair what needed to be repaired mm -hmm. when gas and coal were so cheap. Exactly. Maybe if we had turned it back on and fixed it, we'd be a little farther along with figuring out what to do with these <laughs> propeller blades. <laughs> well, that, I can't think of anything else you'd want to know about the wind energy program. <laughs> No, that's a little. New Mexico was, was named themselves Wind, Windy City. <laughs> I mean, they got one early. I that. So <laughs> when we were done with the research on that machine, NASA offered it to Clayton. You can have it for nothing. Mm -hmm. I, I said, see. no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but we're good. <laughs> well, they generated their power with big diesel stationary mm -hmm. engines. Mm -hmm. Running on natural gas yeah. with, I think it was 15%, no, it should have been around, it was 15% uh, diesel and 85% natural gas. So the diesel was only used to start the ignition. Get it going. Yeah. So they were, they were in good shape and... They were they, because we were they they were looking over our shoulder. <laughs> they knew what the problems were like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, they were actually running the machine in Clayton. Mm -hmm. We uh, 
our engineers taught them how to, how to run it. Get it all done. But any repairs or adjustments, we got called. And uh, so I made, uh, I counted them for a while, 125 takeoffs and 125 landings, uh, most of them safe. <laughs> and then I quit counting. <laughs> Quite a few. So I made a few trips out there. Just a few. Before we get off NASA too much, what was the research used for? Do you remember anything in particular that used the stuff you were I experimenting? I can't put project names on them because okay. my memory is not good enough. However, in the rocket line, uh, we worked on both liquid fuel rockets, which is what everybody's using today. Uh, we in the machine shop, we built a lot of of, of rocket fuel injectors. These were circular devices, looked like a shower head. In fact, we called them shower head injectors. And their, their function was to mix the oxidant and the fuel as it left the nozzle in the, in, in the atomized form. You didn't want it to ignite back into where it was liquid fuel, because then you'd go pick the pieces up and try again, <laughs> which we did a lot of. So uh, the standard, the, the one we made the most of was we built injectors that were 10 inch, we call it faceplate diameter. It had maybe 100 holes in it for the shower head effect. They were weldments and also furnace sprays together. And we would build Gavin's design, the blueprints he brought me. And then we'd give this piece of hardware to Gavin and the next day he'd bring it back saying, well, here it is, there's left of it. Now, <laughs> here's a drawing for the new one. <laughs> here's the next iteration. We had, uh, oh, it used to be, it was almost funny. Yeah. We got to know the uh, engineers pretty well. That was another thing that I can't say too much about, is the engineering staff, the researchers, the aerospace mechanics. We actually worked like a team. I mean, really, actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> we, the engineers were coming over to the shop all the time, of course, and to check on their project or make changes before you go too far. And then it goes to the aerospace mechanics and set it up and ran them and so on. So it was wonderful. But, okay, we got the rocket, the <laughs> liquid fuel injectors, and then, uh, oh, yeah, we built different sizes. The smallest ones, the faceplate was the size of a nickel. Oh, geez, tiny. I've got one of those at home. <laughs> that was an apprentice who made that. And uh, they were steer steering rockets. So the part we made was just the injector. But well, we made the rest of the rocket, too. The rocket motor was about that tall, yeah. about that diameter. Yeah. And it wasn't a plaything. It was a real rocket. Yeah, you was... put four of them on the... On the Assembly. The model and <laughs> yeah. yeah, get it going. All this stuff was tested in the South 40 where we had rocket test stands. Mm -hmm. And so you got to know the mechanics too. And sometimes they bring the scrap back to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I still remember George Repus, uh, our rocket engineer. He showed up one day with this one, that, one injector that had a big hole melted to it. And he says, this was a good one. <laughs> I said, what do you mean, George? He said, it lasted 
Seven seconds. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> but we also did solid fuel rockets. We worked on those. And uh, I wish I could tell you what... You see, these were all prototypes. Right. Yeah. The, these 10,000-pound thrust injectors we made that big were dwarfed by the real thing, yeah. which is that big, you know? It's 10 times larger. <laughs> Yeah. But what we learned from those was materials and fluid flows and stuff like that. Vital. That were, you could apply to the big stuff. And we were able to test in our facilities a lot of these things. That, uh, and we'd improve them until somebody was happy somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry you don't remember them because I remember, I, at, least, at least I recall you telling me about one or two that I brought up that you remembered working on the prototypes for. Oh, we'll bring them up. I don't remember what they are. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about a rocket engine? It, it was a rocket engine. For, it, was an, it was an engine for a, a satellite that we sent out in space at some point. Well, there were plasma rockets. Yeah, that's um, that's what I think uh, it yeah. was. We, we built a few tests with my brother-in-law. He was aerospace mechanic at the lab. And uh, he was into the plasma propulsion systems. He was crew chief on tank 302, which was the size of his room, vacuum tank. <laughs> and they would run this stuff in the tank and see what happened. Well, he got into the laser programs, uh, but he was aerospace mechanic and served as apprenticeship at the lab. But that would have been probably the, the plasma yeah. engines. And, we, and since we have a lot of experience with the Department of Energy. We had, during the uh, fuel crisis era in the 1970s, mm -hmm. we were doing quite a bit of work for them, trying to improve emissions and fuel economy of automobile engines. So in engine research building, we had several test cells in there that mm -hmm. were, I've had a Cadillac engine in this one, a Chevy over there, and, You'd build them and change them and see what happens. And we did a we did a lot of research on ignition systems for spark plug ignition engines, sure. high energy ignition systems, which is now in standard use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, we did a couple other talk about it. Well, we're an engine center, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for the DOE, we built uh, a Sterling powered pickup truck. Oh God, <laughs> Sterling engine. Yeah. Now, we didn't build the engine. No. We bought it from Phillips. They were a British company. Mm -hmm. And so we took a Phillips engine and adapted it to a Chevy pickup truck, made it work. And then we tried to improve the engine, as usual. Mm -hmm. We also, yeah, the DOE was a source of a lot of fun. Oh, eye surgery. Eye <laughs> oh, surgery? Yeah, why would you? <laughs> It's kind of out of character, you know. This, uh, I don't know where this all came from, but we were in the machine shop. We, uh, my, my division chief said that we're gonna start making tools for cataract surgery. And said, so expect this stuff to come in. I was a uh, branch chief then. He says, you're gonna see some small, small hardware coming, a uh, request coming in. So we, uh, I was introduced to an uh, engineer by the name of Ed Bear. Nice guy, most of the time. 
And <laughs> he was designing these tools for cataract removal. And basically, uh, if you took a pipe and put an auger in it, like for drilling fence post holes or something, and you stick that pipe in your eye up against the cataract, you can grind it up and pump it out in little, in little pieces, yeah. right? So that was the principle involved in this particular tool, except that it was about the size of a ballpoint pen, and the auger could be extended or retracted with a foot control, and the speed was variable, you could adjust that. And the suction was a very, was variable. And the auger had to fit inside of a small hypodermic needle. <laughs> so we, we got into that stuff too. I don't know how. But <laughs> and it was an ongoing project, probably five years. They finally had a device that they wanted to test, oh, we used to test it in the, at NASA on pig's eyes that we'd get from the stockyard. <laughs> and uh, eventually it was, it was uh, developed to the point where they wanted to try to have it real people. And the, I don't know why it went this way, but we, they, we sent a, a crew with uh, Dr. Bear to India. They had some sort of a big eye surgery facility somewhere in India, and uh, was, we demonstrated our equipment there. But then Dr. Bear, you know, he, he was done, I guess, didn't come around anymore, so I don't know what happened to the, huh. the idea, but it sort of went away. We got into some fun stuff. Interesting, yeah. You, talking about the people you met at NASA, is there anyone... It kind of stands out because I know that you know, when you when you got there, most of the people were. I think almost everybody there was World War II vet. Oh yeah, machine shop. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, outstanding people. Well, I could I could give you a whole catalog, but <laughs> the fellows I worked with were. I mean, the whole shop was great. There were various skill levels and various specialties. You know, Gavin might say, "Hey, I'd like to learn how to do EDM work." Of course, your boss would say, okay, there's a job. Let me know if you're getting in trouble. <laughs> and uh, so we we didn't have specialists, but we had people that seemed to do exceptionally well on this or that. And, and if you had a tough job, that's where you'd feed it. And like the dynamic balancing, that's a trade or an art in its own. You know, all this hardware we built, not all of it. A lot of the hardware we built was rotating, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. And you don't want any vibrations. So you've got to balance it before you actually run it in the test cell. You've got to balance it without affecting its performance. And, uh, and we did a lot of that. You know, we also worked for, on Pratt & Whitney aircraft engines. After the piston engine era, we would still get some piston engine work, Lycoming, Pratt & Whitney. They were studying combustion chamber design, believe it or not. And uh, we made hardware for them. We tested stuff for them under contract. Sure, sure. But uh, I guess as time passed, we retired a lot of people and we didn't get replacements. And when I left, there was 
maybe 35 people in the shop. And uh, I see my successor occasionally, belongs to our church. Oh. <laughs> uh, Rick Wiedemannat, nice guy. Anyway, <laughs> Rick Wiedemannat recently retired and he replaced me. Mm -hmm. branch. He's an engineer. What? Well, he's still an engineer. But anyway, I asked him, how many civil servants did you have when, I, when you left? He said three. <laughs> yeah, I guess those places have started to go away. Well, you know, oh yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just part of the cycle of life. Yeah. yeah. They, they needed a specialty center for spacecraft, and mm -hmm. now we don't need that. No, and we're doing things differently, so. Yeah. It's shifted. Yeah, now we need a locomotive. Well, okay, we'll start another facility and yep. build locomotives for you. Well, I know that you had a few stories about Mr. Ibahara who worked with you at that. Oh, the, Ben Ibahara? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess he's, what would he be, second generation? His parents immigrated from Japan. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was... Uh, Full play, he, well, I don't know where he got his degree. I don't, it wasn't in Japan. Mm -hmm. Ben was a full-fledged engineer when I was an apprentice. And I did a lot of work with him or for him. And uh, his brother lived in Oberlin. But I think they got caught up in the uh, internment camps. Mm, yeah, a lot of people did. And I say that because... His brother was doing uh, research on that. One of my brothers-in-laws bought a piece of property on Oberlin Road, and next door was the remains of some metal houses and farm equipment. And he, my brother-in-law knew the property owner, and he told me that the property owner said, that those were leftovers from the Japanese internment camp in Illyria. Really? They were moved from the camp to that site on Oberlin Road after the camp was no longer a camp. Yeah. And the owner of the property had planned to rent these out for housing. These, they were all metal houses is what they were. Small. Mm -hmm. And I tried over the years to Pin that down. Is that really true? You know, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think it is. But I made the mistake of not talking to Ben Ibarra's brother. I'll bet you he knew. <laughs> Could be. I don't know if he's still alive, and I can't remember his first name, but he was an optometrist, or at least in that field. I can't tell you what category, but uh, I don't know if he's an eye surgeon. I Anyway, he was doing this, this part-time in Oberlin. And I don't know if he's even alive anymore. Well, Ben be my age. But there was a uh, Connie Davis who wrote a column for the Chronicle Telegram back then. And she would do a lot of history stuff. She was really good. You could find any of her Connie Davis's columns that you'd enjoy them. A good writer. But... Uh, since I wasn't having any, oh, and I found a resistance. People didn't want to talk about this subject. Not uncommon, yeah, that's true. And uh, so I didn't really make any progress, although it was just, you know, when I could think of something, I'd ask around. Mm -hmm. Most people said, no, there's nothing like that. And 
people that lived here during that time period in the county, you know, and Don Klaz, who was an excavating business at the time. And you'd think that he would know. I mean, not that he did any work for them, but he would know what's going on. That, uh, no. So anyway, I never talked to Ben's brother, and I should have. But uh, Connie Davis, I started to tell you about her. I decided to give her a call one day and ask her if she knew anything about the internment camp, Japanese internment camp in Elyria. She says, never heard of it. Now, she was older than me. And uh, she said that, uh, she says, I quite often I'll go to the Elyria Country Club. And she says, I know a lot of people around here that might know about that. And she says, I'll let you know where I find out. So she called me back a couple of weeks later. She says, I didn't. Nobody said they didn't know anything about it. Are you sure you're getting your information right? I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm hoping you can tell me. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else, just ad hoc, I wasn't even looking. I can't even tell you who it was or where I met him. A fellow that I brought that subject up for some reason. And, well, yeah, he said, uh, there's a Quonset that still exists. Of the internment camp, hmm. and uh, well, it's right in your neighborhood. Uh, Martin Court uh, goes between Indian Hollow and 57. It's a little like a private driveway. There was a concert out there for many, many years. It's gone now. But whoever I was talking to said, Yeah, that's part of that internment camp. We moved the concert out to save it hmm. for further use. He said, yeah, there was an internment camp. He said it was on a golf course. Okay. Well, get back on the phone with Connie Davis. <laughs> I said, you know where uh, anybody that's involved with the golf courses? She says, yeah, I'm a member of the Maria Country Club, you know. She says, I've never heard of that. Well, it turns out, I can't tell you now, maybe it was the same guy that said it was on a golf course. Eventually, he told me it was on Cherry Knoll. Golf course, which is on Golf Road, north of Valeria. Yeah. So I, I don't have any other information on it. Well, this may all be a total fabrication, Fred. But possibly. <laughs> but that's you know that's why we're that's why we're preserving these things yeah. mm-hmm. and talking about all this fun stuff too. That's so maybe if you look in the Oberlin telephone directory, yeah. you'll find Ben Ebahar Optical. <laughs> and yeah. and I've checked out books on that subject. And never found one for Lorraine County, let alone Luria. Yeah, exactly. We completely move off of Ben. Could you, what was it like you with him working with people at the machine shop since he's a second generation Japanese, you know, and everybody there was working, was a World War II veteran? Some some of the uh, vets did not want to work with Ben. They made that known. And uh, they couldn't figure out why he had no part in the war. But... Uh, his association with his parents or grandparents or great grandparents, I guess, blew it. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's not really funny. But uh, that that was rare. There were only a few guys that expressed their. Uh, they, nobody, they didn't have to refuse to do his work because their supervisors knew that they didn't want to, and so they wouldn't be assigned to work with him. But most of the people in the shop welcomed him. He's a nice guy. 
good engineer. I mean, mm-hmm. no problem. <laughs> you went you went shooting with Mr. Bahar a couple of times. Oh yeah, one time, <laughs> one time, one time. Uh, during the race riot time period, mm-hmm. he was concerned about protecting his family, mm-hmm. like so many people were at the time. You had, you had trouble finding a shotgun if you wanted to buy one, but uh, anyway. He asked me, he knew I was in the firearm hobby. I, I did quite a bit of shooting back then. I started shooting. And uh, he, he said, would you be willing to teach me how to use a, a handgun? I said, sure, no problem. And so he went to Sears Roebuck and bought a 22 revolver. And they were pretty inexpensive. And uh, so we used, we'd go out to the, I think two Saturdays, we went out to the city dump. When it was uh, this in Grafton, <laughs> you shoot at tin cans and bottles, you know. And uh, it wasn't the one on Main Street, though. No, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, where the golf course was. What's yeah. the name of the golf course? Uh, up the road, uh, by the uh, school? On uh, Parsons Road. Um, Royal Oaks? Royal Oaks, thank you. Yeah. That dump was back there. Oh, yeah, it was back in the corner, wasn't yep. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, uh, they dug a pretty deep pit and then just kept bringing the trash in. So Ben and I went back there one or two Saturdays and uh, he learned how to shoot. <laughs> kind of uh, funny, though, is that as the afternoon passed, his shooting deteriorated. And uh, I said, well, you're probably just getting tired, Ben, so let's knock off, you know. I said, well, when you get, get to my place, we'll clean it, clean your gun. And I couldn't believe what I saw, Fred. <laughs> well, actually, he was having trouble with last there from chambering the rounds. And it's, it was a revolver. Mm-hmm. And they had to push hard to get him chambered. Mm-hmm. That's something wrong. And he, uh, he, he shot so much, and it was such a cheap gun that it probably didn't have good finishes in the, in the barrel no. and, the, and the cylinder. The shreds of lead were hanging down from inside the barrel. <laughs> you look down the barrel, what's that stuff going in there? <laughs> no, we were able to get it clean for him. Yeah, I didn't have any qualms about teaching him how to shoot. I knew the guy. He was not going to be troublemaker. I mean, the yeah. guy was concerned about being able to protect his family. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. is, there, uh, is there anything else you wanted to share about your... Experiences in, in crafting. This could go on for days. Yes, yeah. right. <laughs> Well, and I'm all full of it. <laughs> well, that's okay. We can maybe do other ones. That's for sure. <laughs> no, I, well, it's, it's up to you. But <laughs> well, I guess we'll we'll probably end up wrapping then. But uh, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing. With it's us. a pleasure. Next time we'll talk about the explosion at the pump house in Grafton. <laughs> we'll do that for sure. On the, the railroad pump oh, house. Oh yeah. You ever known about that? I've heard about it. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I, we appreciate you coming in and taking the time. Glad to do it. And sharing with everybody. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much to our guest, Gerald Matusik, for joining us to discuss his experience working for NASA in the Department of Energy. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out part one, which we released a little bit earlier which is all about his life growing up in Grafton and uh, living in Grafton with his family. 
For more local history content, check out the Grafton Midview Public Library's collection online at gmplibrary.org slash local history, where you can find photos, documents, and uh, more audio files. If you have a question for us or a topic you'd like us to explore in a future episode, or if you want to participate and share yourself, email us at postcardsfromgrafton at gmail.com. That's postcardsfromgrafton at gmail.com. Give the library a call or stop into the library itself and say hi to us. You can also view our local history collection in the Doris Wildenheim Local History Room on the second floor. Thank you for listening.